It's great to see you today. Um, if you're online with us, we're glad you're here as well. And um, my name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. And I'll tell you a couple of things uh, before we get into God's Word this morning. So um, we are looking at, just kind of as an update for you, um, where we're headed over the next uh, several weeks. We're looking at, we're planning towards, let me say it this way, we are planning towards uh, September the 6th as being the Sunday where we will kind of go back to uh, things um, as close to as normal as they were before. So we'll uh, resume our two services. We are looking at um, uh, our children's ministry and being able to um, come back in children's ministry um, all the way up and down the, the board on that. And so that is our plan now. As with everything, you know, um, I know we're all weary of all of these things. Um, if things remain how they are, not much worse, that is our plan. We realize when school starts here in a couple of weeks, we will probably see an uptick in cases. That's my guess. I mean, I'm no prophet, um, but that's my guess, and that we'll have more of that, um, but that won't be a surprise to us. I think that will be expected. We'll have kids that will be going back to school. And so, anyways, we're going to do the best that we can to adjust it, and we're trying to work through some things that are less date-related and more condition-related, meaning um, uh, that the, the date on the calendar doesn't matter so much, but that we'll have some metrics that if... if you know, we get to a certain amount of cases or so many beds are full or whatever it is, then that would help um, guide us in some decisions that we might make from a week-to-week basis if we need to pull back or, or, or continue to move forward. So that's where we're headed. That's our intention. We're planning for that. On August the 13th, if you've got kids, we're doing a Bethel Kids. It's a Thursday evening, uh, not this Thursday, the next Thursday. It's a drive-through. It's going to start at 5.30. We'd love for you to load your kids up into your vehicle, come drive through the parking lot. We're going to have a bunch of fun, have some stuff for them. It is also going to um, be the, the, the you know, kind of pre-promotion. That Sunday, we're going to virtually promote your children to the next grade. And so they'll be um, contacted about that and welcomed, and hopefully all of that excitement will begin to build as we move towards the beginning of September. So that's um, that. Also, on the beginning of September... Um, we'll come back at two services. We'll start a series this fall in um, the letter that John wrote, the first letter that John wrote. Now, if you've been going to Barry's uh, Wednesday night deal, how long, how far are you guys into that? Uh, we're in the fourth. Halfway through four. Halfway through four. Okay. Well, so you, so that's the varsity. We'll do the JV on Sunday morning of First John. All right. And uh, but that's what we're going to do this. But this month. August, these next couple of weeks. This is the most boring introduction. Um, I'm out of practice. I hadn't been here in a few weeks. Um, but man, were there some great preaching this last month, beginning with Paul Tanner and then Todd, who always does great, and Casey and John. I mean, what? how fun is that? I just think that's incredible. Um, oh, yeah. Today, Jacob. Find Genesis chapter 28. Um, that's where we're going to be. Um, I want to look at Jacob's life over the next few weeks as we um, think about some things that are fundamental to us at Bethel. And one of those things this morning we're going to be talking about is God's grace. God's grace, his pursuit of us, is fundamental to what we believe as a church, and then we'll um, examine some other things, and we'll do that through Jacob's life. Um, Genesis chapter 28, I would say it this way, by way of beginning. From the moment that we're conceived, we are pushing the story of God to the background of our lives. That's, that's what it means to have a sin nature. And the reality is if something radical does not happen to us, we are destined for a tragic ending in this life and in the life to come. 
We are born pushing, holding at bay the, the, the story that God is writing. We're trying to push that away with all of our might by our nature. And if something radical doesn't happen to us, then we're destined for a tragic end in this life and in the life to come. Which brings me to this character that we find in Genesis named Jacob. He's the third of four main characters at the end of Genesis. So Genesis has these kind of parallels of four. At the, at the beginning, you have, um, you have creation, you have the fall, you have the flood, and then you have the, the judgment, the, the Tower of Babel. The, the last half, beginning in chapter 12, I say last half, it's actually the last like three-fourths, it's divided into four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then there's a deal with the Jacob's sons, but then it, it ends, there's a focus towards the end on Joseph. Jacob is mentioned more than the other three in Genesis. Of the three main religions in the world who claim their origin in Abraham, Judaism and Christianity come through Jacob's line. In fact, Jacob will later be known as Israel. Jacob had the knowledge at the beginning of his life that he was part of God's great story. He grew up knowing or knowing God's promise, uh, the, the redemption, the, the blessing, the things that um, God had promised his grandfather and then his father Isaac, and then um, that he would, would be the recipient of. His birth, you find in Genesis 25, was an answer to prayer. His position in Genesis 25, the, the place that he was going to have, even though he was the younger of the twins... That's given to us. It was planned by God in Genesis 25. There were blessings by God that he was meant to inherit, both for his own pleasure, but, but primarily as part of God's plan for, for his glory, but part of this great story that God is writing. And, and, and Jacob knew all of this, presumably. He knew the prophecy of his birth. Surely his mom had told him that. He knew the testimony of God's word through Abraham and Isaac. But what you find in Jacob's life is that knowing about it is not enough. At Jacob's conception, while he's still in the womb, he had inherited a nature that was in competition against God. And he's striving from the womb, he has a sin nature. His name, Jacob, literally means to be a cheat, a deceiver. And the reality is we're all born with the same nature that Jacob was born with. We come out of the womb in competition with God, shaking our fist at God, a nature that's not able to take hold of God. Instead, we come out we come into this world trying to grasp everything we can get from the world. And the truth is the world's broken. And even though Jacob is born into God's chosen people, the way of the world that he was clinging to was operating in direct opposition to God. And, and, and Jacob made choices to pursue temporary blessings by temporary means and for the most part, up to this point in Jacob's life, he's missing God's eternal story. He's missing the story that God is weaving into his life. And so that brings me to Genesis chapter 28. And I'm going to begin in verse 10. And in verse 10, what you're going to find is that Jacob is on the run from his brother Esau. He has cheated his brother out of the blessing. You remember the story? You learned it in Sunday school, the flannel graph where there's Jacob, and then he, he, he put on the hairy costume and went to the blind dad, Isaac, and stole the blessing um, after he'd sold it for a, a cup of stew. So anyways, he's on the run. Esau's mad about it. He's on the run, not only from what he's done, I think he's on the run from who he is. 
And we're finding him here in, in, in Genesis chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. He's alone and nowhere. And it says this, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He, he, so so he's sent away. He's he sent away by his mom and his dad. He's sent away for his protection. He's sent away to go find a wife. And for Jacob to leave Beersheba and to travel toward Haran, is to travel the road that his great or that his grandfather Abraham had traveled. He's just traveling it in reverse. He's going backwards. Haran is a place that literally the, the name means parched. To, to get to Haran from Beersheba, you gotta travel more than 150 miles north, past the northern borders of the of the promised land, then you go east from there. And it was this layover in Genesis 12 for Abram. He's called out of the land of Ur. He's called um, into the promised land. It's where um, Abraham will bury his father. God called him out of that to come and embrace everything that God was leading him to. But Jacob is going back here. He's leaving the land. He's on the run. And even though, even though he had received the blessing, the, the promises, all, all these things that were given to him by his father, passed on by his father, he's leaving them. The, the blessing that he worked so hard to manipulate for, he's having to run away from because he's leaving the place God promised because he procured it in a way that threatened his life. So unlike Abraham, who we were introduced to as leaving father and mother and family, moving by faith into promises, Jacob's here leaving father and mother and family and fleeing in fear. Look at verse 11. And he came to a certain place and stayed uh, there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of the place... He put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. This is a, a place. And several times the, the, the writer here, Mo, Moses, is going to tell us about a place, a place, a place. And we're introduced. It's just an ordinary place. It's just a stop on the way. He hadn't gotten very far. It got night. He got tired. He's just a plain old place. Finds a plain old stone, lays down, and is going to sleep for. The night. We don't exactly know what time he left on his journey. He's only gotten about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. But he's in for a long journey. And in the next few days, it probably already begun to take its toll. J Jacob's alone. Nobody's watching over him. Nobody's looking out for him. He's headed to a place he probably never imagined that he was going to go, to a future that is uncertain at best. And the truth is, there's probably not a person here this morning in this room or watching online that hasn't walked that road. A road that's lonely and it's full of introspection. The, the, the taste of blessing and, and success and, and winning, all that had surely faded. And, and Jacob's there under the night sky, rock under his head trying to make sense of what happened. And he's probably scheming his next move. That's what he does. It's in his nature. He's still clinging to his own craftiness here. I can tell you what there is in these first couple of verses. There's no evidence of him crying out to God or seeking help. He's just a man alone on a lonely journey. Well, that's Jacob on the run. I want you to see, secondly... Um, God is going to show up and reveal himself. Look here at the beginning of verse 12. So, so what happens at, at beginning in verse 12 is nothing short of miraculous, and I don't want you to miss it just before we read it. So up to this point in Genesis, when one of God's men uh, falls asleep, God ends up putting on a show. He does it to Adam in the garden. Remember that? He put Adam to sleep, wakes up, and there's a woman it's like a dream come true. He does it with Abraham. He puts him to sleep, wakes him up, and then all of a sudden Abraham finds that he's in covenant with God. God's done everything. Well, here Jacob's going to go to sleep. So, so actually there's two 
very significant events in Jacob's life, then both happen at night. This is one of them. There's another one we'll look at in a couple of weeks. But, but I think that the reason you see this happening in Genesis, so early in this story of, of redemption that God is writing, and that he puts these men to sleep, is to highlight the fact that the men are doing nothing to deserve the grace that is about to be bestowed upon them. That they're not going to participate necessarily in any way. Grace isn't something we meet God in the middle of. Like grace is not the halfway point we end up communing with God. Grace comes directly and wholly from God. It originates with Him. He freely bestows it. God is the one who is active. Look, look at verse 12. He's going to give him a picture here. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Some people take the ladder, the, the image, and, and, they, and they say about it that, that God, what he does is he, he plants the, the ladder, the bottom of the ladder on earth, and then he, he, he bids anybody if they want to, they can come and climb the ladder. Just start climbing. You might call it climbing theology. It's a theology that says God's made the way for men to come to Him. But they got to do all the work. You've got to start climbing. You know, the reality is most of us in this room, you know, if you've been around Bethel for a while, you say, you know, I, that's not what we believe. And you, I'd say, you're right, that isn't. But we don't, we don't have a climbing theology around here. At least not in our heads. The reality is, though, we all live out in some way a climbing theology, don't we? All trying to climb a ladder, trying to, to get to God. So see, the imagery here in, in this, this picture that God's giving to Jacob, it's exactly the opposite. The ladder isn't where man's come and you know, beckoned to ascend. It, it's a ladder in which God will descend. See, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a grace ladder. Not a ladder of your works, it's a ladder of God's grace. The grace is that God was coming to Jacob. God was descending. God was pursuing. There's absolutely no human reason to be suggested that Jacob was deserving in the least of God's pursuit. Go back this week, starting Genesis 24, 25. You won't find a reason. But the picture is that God's come down and he's going to speak and he's going to give Jacob his word and he's going to give Jacob his promise. And you've got to remember, Jacob's in the posture. All he can do is receive. He's, he's, drool's coming out of his mouth. He's receiving. God's giving. He's receiving. That's grace. That's the beautiful, beautiful truth about the pursuit of God. It's pure grace. See, grace, maybe let's define it this way. It's God's free, unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. It's the love of God shown to the unlovely. It's, it's God reaching down to people who are in rebellion against him. Spurgeon said, we hold that man is never so near grace as when he begins, he can, when he begins to feel he can do nothing at all. So see, our unworthiness, our unloveliness, our sinfulness, rather than disqualifying us, is actually what qualifies us for God's grace. See, he doesn't make promises to people that deserve grace. He comes and brings promises to people that need grace. God doesn't simply just come into your life in spite of your sin. 
or your brokenness or your pain or your weakness. He, he comes because of it. See, that's who God is. He loves you. He cares about you. He's, he's the God of grace. Look at verses 13 and 14. And behold, the Lord stood above it, the, the, the ladder. And he said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Notice there at the beginning of verse 13, God introduces himself. He didn't need to, right? I mean, Jacob wouldn't have known. He'd heard about God all of his life. There's no, no evidence, though, of him reaching out or crying to God or praying to God, but he would have known who God was. But, but God introduces himself. The father, I'm like a, the God of Abraham, your father, and Isaac. You know, you know what God will say about himself after this? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. See, Jacob here is encountering God, the God he knew about. He's encountering him and meeting him for the first time. Firsthand, Jacob, from this day on, is going to have his own story about the day that he met God. From this day on, he's going to have a story about when he encountered the grace of God. This is the day that the God he'd heard about all his life became his God. God is going to claim Jacob here. He comes to him. He reveals himself. He speaks to him. He, he claims him. It would not have sufficed for Jacob to grow up, spend his own whole life only having heard stories of his father and his grandfather. They're good stories, miraculous stories, inspiring stories, personal stories. But Jacob needed to meet God. You know what? You do too. Your children and your grandchildren. Doesn't matter if your mom or your dad knew God. You need to know Him. You need to know more than just their stories. You need to have more than just their borrowed faith. You need more than just their secondhand grace. You need to know Him. I want you to notice a couple of remarkable things about what God says to Jacob here. He says, The land that you're sleeping on. I'm going to give it to you and to your offspring. Truth is, this is probably the last night Jacob's going to spend in that land for over 20 years. He's fleeing because of his own sin, his own consequences. But God's saying to him, this is, nonetheless, this is your land. It's, it's a promise for Jacob to hold onto, to, to cling to. Well, where you're going is not your home. This is your home. This is your land. The second one is that you're, you're going to have offspring like the dust. This is very similar to what he had told his grandfather Abraham. It means you're going to have descendants beyond your ability to number. Remember, here's Jacob. He's alone. He's estranged from his family. No foreseeable future. God's saying, I know the end of your story. And it is magnificent. No matter what you feel like tonight, Jacob, Tomorrow is the beginning of living the life that I promised, that I guarantee you are a blessed man. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. No matter what it feels like today, you know what? God knows the end of the story. And if, and if you've encountered him and you've received his grace, grace it's a magnificent story. no matter what you find your head laying on in the moment. The blessing that Jacob gained through deceit, what he's about to discover is it's the blessing that God had planned for him all along. 
Now, in the meantime, because of what Jacob had done, there's going to be some hard days ahead. But God's saying, listen, my will is being accomplished in your life. And no matter how you think you got here, my hand has been on you. And this is the beauty of God's providence in our life. Well, there's this this promise, uh, there's the the picture, there's the promise. I want you to see the the, the presence that that God's going to offer him, beginning in in verse 15. uh, The first part of it, he says, Behold, I'm with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. Notice the promise. I'm with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I'm going to bring you back. I will not leave you, he's going to say, until I have, um, until I've, uh, I will not leave you until I have what I've, do you have what I promised you? It's the essence of the, of the promise. See, too many believers, I think, cannot understand that this is the heart and the essence of grace. You're living your life with this legalistic fear that somehow you have to earn the presence of God. That you have to keep God happy so he doesn't go anywhere. You're, you're insecure about your position with God. You're, you're unsure about his overwhelming grace. You spend your life looking at yourself, trying to measure up instead of, instead of seeing God, walking in the promise of his grace. Listen, you, you, you won't be free to truly love him until you rightly see him. See, his grace brings freedom. That's what Paul says in Galatians. It's for freedom you have been set free. His grace, it's going to produce an obedience. Oh, absolutely. An obedience, though, that comes from love, not out of insecurity. And the proof, the proof is the cross. God sent his only son to the cross. Jesus is nailed to a tree. The weight of the world's sin is heaped on him. And the power of God's infinite wrath is poured out on him. He is the one who gets separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He comes to know the forsakenness so that you never have to know it. Your sin separated the Father from the Son at that moment on the cross so that you don't have to be separated. So even in the midst of your act of sin, you'll not be forsaken. God is with you. Well, not only is his presence promised, look at the permanence of it, the last half of, of verse 15. For I'll not leave you till I have done what I promised you. Don't miss this. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And it is a promise made to Jacob with his full life in view. I mean, you start at Genesis 25 and think, man, Jacob's kind of a sorry rat. He's kind of done some sorry things. You know what? Guess what? It's not over yet. You know what Jacob is? He's a terrible son. He's a terrible brother. He's a terrible husband. He's a terrible father. He doesn't win. No one would invite Jacob to speak at a marriage conference or a parenting seminar. No one would go to Jacob for family counseling. The pain and the stupidity of Jacob's life is nowhere near over. And even with that in full view of God, he says, I'll never leave you until until I have done what I promised you. It is an unconditional promise that God is not going 
anywhere. He will not leave Jacob. He will not. Not until he's done what he promised. Jacob actually clung to that his whole life. There's four times at least that he repeats that in his life. He gives it away to, to Joseph as well. Jesus is introduced in Matthew's gospel. You know how Jesus is introduced in Matthew's gospel to Mary's husband, Joseph, in a dream? Emmanuel, God with us. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says to his disciples, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Paul will say in Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not tribulation, not distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, or things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else. And all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, absolutely nothing can separate the believer from the grace of God. Well, let's quickly look at Jacob's response. I'm kind of getting into this. I haven't done this in about four weeks. You okay? Can we hang on just another minute? Look at Jacob's response, beginning in verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Hmm, surely the Lord's in this place. And I did not know it. How great is that? See, that's the way crisis often finds um, you in your life, you know? It's how it works. You discover God was right there all along in the midst of what you didn't even know. And you certainly wouldn't have guessed it. At, at the moment, maybe we could take this away from here. At, at the moment that Jacob felt furthest from hope, we find he was in the presence of God. See, I think that's why people who walk through very hard things in life, difficult times, lonely times, it, They'd never choose it again. No, nobody would ever choose that again. But, but you oftentimes find them saying at the end, or on the other side of it, well, you know, I wouldn't choose that again, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's just when you come to the place, you, you stop running, you stop fighting, you, you, you stop pushing it away. You, you have to embrace the moment you're in, reach for God. You know what you find? He's there. I don't think the grace of God can be grasped while we're on the run. The weight of His grace is it's too heavy. We, we, we run from God out of fear and panic, hoping He won't catch up with us, only to discover when we finally quit running. He's where we were running to all along. Verse 17, and he was afraid, and he said, how fearful. The word's awesome in the text. It's the same word, afraid, fear, awesome. How awesome is this place? There's none other, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I just stopped on the side of the road and used the rock as a pillow. And I found out it's the doorway to heaven. Fear and wonder and, and awe, and Jacob's overwhelmed. And the reason is, is because he's met God. See, if you had to ask him, you know, if he gets on Yelp to kind of rate the accommodations, you know, it's like he went to bed in the Holiday Inn Express and woke up in the Biltmore Mansion. He's met God. He saw heaven open up, he glimpsed a a life from God's perspective. And I just ask you, have you ever done that? Have you met him? Have you seen life from, from God's perspective? Have you heard from him? Have you seen his son? Have you come to the place of being overwhelmed, of 
fear, with, with awe and fear and, and amazement. You know, sometimes we sing songs, we sing these songs, and, you know, we, we, not very often, but, but when we do, and they, you know, we said, I want to see your face. You know, we sing that. Like it's going to be a beautiful sunset, you know, or flower blooming in springtime, or Every time somebody sees the face of God in Scripture, it undoes them. Real encounters with God. They undo us. They shake us to the core. It ignites this mixture of fear and wonder and awe and praise and worship like nothing on this earth can ever do. That's why idolatry, idols are so counterfeit. Idols can't do that. Idols can only meet those needs that we're fully aware of. and They meet the needs in illegitimate ways. God's awake, God awakens desires in us that we didn't even know we had and meets needs in us that eclipse the temporal and ignite in us what is eternal. It's almost too much to bear. And the only response is worship. Verse 18, Jacob's going to show this reverence. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and he set up a pillar and he poured oil on it and on top of it, he's, he's, just, he's making sanctuary here. It's this reverence, it's this deep respect, it's, it's worship, and I don't even know what else to do. I just got to do this. Having met God, everything's changed. No longer a rock in the middle of nowhere, it's a memorial of the presence of God. no longer a place of hiding and fear. It's a place of worship and sanctuary. Notice the remembrance in verse 19. He called the name of the place Bethel. Where we get the name of this church from. It means the house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at, at first. He, he names it Bethel. Literally, the house of God is where he meets God. It's where he heard from God, and that's the point of the story, the point of the, the naming. It's not that this place itself is necessarily special. In fact, later in history, there's going to be a place where they, you know, set up golden calves and worship sacrifices to idols. Your Bethel, it's not a place necessarily. However, it is a hearing from God, this where you've heard from God. For me in my life, I'll tell you real quickly, and we'll get on with this. But my Bethel, I brought it today. I'm preaching from it, kind of. It's this green Bible that I have. It's this old green Bible that I've had since I was 14 years old. And it is where? Means by which I met God. Heard from Him. I heard His Word and began to see Him for myself firsthand. Sometimes I wrote in the margin. I go back and thumb through and I can remember where I was when I wrote that. Now it's falling apart and that has nothing to do with me being spiritual, I promise you. It if anything, it's shown me my brokenness and my sinfulness and my desperateness, my need. But I met him here. I heard from him here in his word. See, in this time in history, this, how, this is how God reveals himself to us. Here in, in, in this, God reveals himself to Jacob through a dream and a picture. To, to us, God reveals himself no less powerfully. He does it through his word. And, and if you want to know God firsthand, you, you want to know him, you, you cannot know him apart from his word. You won't hear him primarily apart from his word. In fact, you, you can hear him. You can hear him right now. You can know him. You, he's revealed himself. He's present. He's standing there on the ladder coming down. God is Son, Jesus, the Word made flesh, fully inspired by God, authored by God, poured out through human authors, speaks to us directly from heaven through the pages of the Bible. Listen, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God we meet 
and hear and see in the Bible. He's come down. He's done it plainly and powerfully through His Word. That's why it's Bethel Bible Church. All right, last bit. To the, the receive, he's going to receive this, make a dedication. Uh, then Jacob, verse 20, made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, this is, hard, this is hard here, and I'll tell you it's hard for two reasons, all right? One of those is, did you see that this is an if-then statement? God, if you do this, well, then you can be my God. Now, there is some debate. This it is not easy. A lot of ink has been shed. Where does the then go? Does it go before then? You, you know, then you can be my God. Or if, if, you're, if you're doing all these things today, then, then, I'll, then, I'll, then I'll trust you. Where the then goes is up for some debate. But I, it wouldn't surprise me. Listen, it, this is not miraculous change on the part of Jacob. It's miraculous grace on the part of God. J- Jacob's still got a journey to go through here. He's the deceiver, he's the conniver, he's the schemer. It does not surprise me, shocks me. Doesn't surprise me. He's bargaining here with God. If you do all this, then you can be my God. The truth is, we're just imperfect worshipers like Jacob ourselves, right? A few observations. <laughs> he's trying to bargain with God for what he already has unconditionally. Jacob knows in his head about God. What he knows in his head, what he's done with his hands, he's yet to make it in this, this place, this transforming place in his heart. It's going to get there. The next several chapters of Jacob's life are about this transformation of his heart. Circumcising his heart, the changing of his heart, that's a work only God can do. J- Jacob, he'll continue to learn, he'll continue to struggle, he'll, he'll wor- continue to worship. God will be the one transforming his heart. The work that God does in our hearts is like the work of a skilled surgeon who cuts out and repairs what's causing damage. And the healing takes place as that which is killing us is removed and repaired and redeemed. Jesus tells this story of Jacob. In John chapter 1, he's calling his disciples. He meets a guy named Philip calls Philip. Philip runs. He tells Nathaniel, we found him. We found who? Him. Nathaniel's not convinced, but he decides to go and check it out. He shows up. Jesus looks right into his heart and he says, you're a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Nathaniel's like, wait, wait. You know me? Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip found you. I already knew you. And Jesus will go on to tell him, you, you've seen, you haven't seen anything yet. And then tells him this story. But the heavens opening up and the angels of God descending and ascending. And, and then Jesus says, you know what? I'm the ladder. One foot in heaven. One foot on earth, fully God and fully man. I'm God come down. The later say in John 14, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. 
God's story written down in His Word. It's lived out perfectly in His Son, Jesus. It's written on our hearts by His Spirit. And we have full access to the eternity that has been written in our hearts. We can live the truth of the eternity that we were created for from Psalm 139 because we have the Spirit of the eternal God who has been given to us and resides in us, not in a temple we travel to. But in us, we become divine partakers of the spiritual nature. So without fear, you can set aside your rebellion. Without fear, you can receive God's grace. Some of you have. I'm sure a lot of you have. Many. But maybe you sit here this morning and that was a long time ago and it feels like a place far, far away. And what is mundane and routine and ordinary and discouraging and seems to have taken over somewhere along the way you found yourself stopped worshiping God. You stopped seeking Him. It's not a part of your story presently. You've replaced the eternal story that you've been given and you've gone back to the one that's it's temporary. Like one writer said, I do not understand all the mysteries of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it finds us. Two responses this morning. If you have not been awakened to the God of the universe and the life that He offers through His Son, Jesus Christ, the response for you this morning is to believe to have faith, to, to receive His grace. So you know what? I believe that. I believe it. I've been on the run. Now I'm going to stop. I'm going to be overwhelmed by God's grace. But, but believing God for the sacrifice of His Son, receiving the gift of grace, His Son Jesus this morning, by faith, it simply means to trust Jesus with your life and your salvation and your eternity. If you are a believer this morning, you find that you're living a story that's in rebellion or in competition to God, the God who's redeemed you, your response this morning is repent. Bow your head. Confess your sin. Confess your rebellion. Confess your selfishness and turn to Him. You're not running from Him. You're running right into Him. You can stop today. Find out He is here. I'll close this way. You've been gracious. I've been greedy. But I'll end it this way. Lee Strobel wrote a case for Christ. He's the atheist that was the journalist that decided he was going to prove the resurrection. Did not happen and, and, and came face to face with God. Overwhelmed by His grace. And he said this. Maybe this is helpful for you this morning. To be honest, I didn't want to believe that Christianity could, rad could radically transform someone's character and values. It was much easier to raise doubts and manufacture outrageous objections to than to consider the possibility that God actually could trigger a revolutionary turnaround in such a depraved and degenerate life. And the truth is that God could have forgiven my past and given me assurance of heaven and yet kept me at arm's length. Could have made me a mere servant in His kingdom's household. Even that would have been more than I could have ever deserved. But His grace is far more outrageous than that. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God because that is your true self. And every other identity you're pursuing is an illusion.
Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would do what only you can do. That for some this morning, you would take an ordinary place in life, maybe a lonely place, a discouraging place, a hard place. Father, you'd transform that into the house of God right there. Some man or woman or child this morning would look up and say, oh my goodness, I'm in the house of God. I didn't even know it. Father, there are those this morning that, that are ready to be overwhelmed by your grace. Father, I pray you would give them the kind of tiredness that caused them to stop running today. And then, Father, would you grant them faith to believe you and to receive your grace. Father, there are others in here, brothers and sisters in Christ, believers, that have known you for a long time, and, and yet they've stepped out of this eternal story you're writing and into their own story. And Father, some, some feel like they don't know how to come back and it's the same thing. Father, I pray this morning they'd stop running and discover that where they've been running is right into you all along. Father, would you renew their faith? Would you pour your grace out fresh on them this morning? Father, would they, from conviction, move to confession? Father, bask in your forgiveness. And we pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.